Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, Episode 4. Understock at the beginning, and, and as you build your expertise, um, build up your stocking density um, and your stocking rate on your land. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers produce forages for livestock. On today's show, we'll talk to Bill Fosier of Edgefield Sheep. We discuss sheep, lactronets, and border collies. Sadly, my audio has a slight echo, and you learn about a word that I have trouble pronouncing. I guess you've learned two now. Anyway, enough about that. Let's get to the interview. Well, Bill, welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're glad to have you here. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Oh, thanks for having me, Cal. Um, Yeah, I've been at this sheep thing now for the better part of 30 years. Um, Actually, I guess it is, it's right around, it's it's not the better part of it, it's all of 30 years now. Um, Started out with with four ewes um, and built that flock up to... At one point, um, I was managing over a thousand and um, doing a lot of vegetation management um, with that flock, and now um, sort of ramped that back after a couple of business setbacks. And um, last ten or fifteen years, I've been focusing on on a more on a smaller flock, um, producing um, grass-fed lamb. Um, I'm buying in feeder lambs every spring now. Um, I'm, I do have a small breeding flock of just about a dozen ewes, and um, you know we're kind of moving back into the breeding range of things pretty cautiously for economic reasons. But um, so far, the uh, the feeder lamb situation has been doing has been doing well for us. Um, I'm a uh, conservation planner by day and a farmer by afternoon, evening, morning, <laughs> all <laughs> so, the other available yeah, hours. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> that's, uh, that's a little bit about me. Well, very good. On your sheep, do you, what breed are your breeding use? Um, they're, they're, uh, a mixture. Um, the foundation is kind of North country cheviot. Um, and we've been breeding them to a uh, Dorset ram um, that we got from um, Kathy Soder. Uh, actually belongs to a friend of mine, and we, we borrow him. Um, Kathy Soder is um, a Dorset breeder in Pennsylvania who um, you know produces uh, pretty high-end breeding stock that has some expected breeding values, EBVs, that are based on, um, on you know, on a uh, genetic model as opposed to a phenotypic model. So, oh, yes. um, and, and she's primarily a grass-based operation as am I. So, um, you know, looking for somebody who could give us the genetics for sheep that would perform on grass, which is surprisingly hard to find. So far, these guys seem to be doing it pretty well. Oh, yes. The, so, so you have wool, wool sheep. Spit that out correctly. Wool, wool sheep. 
sheep um, with wool. We don't, yeah. yeah, we don't have much. We don't have many wool sheep around here. All of our sheep are here are hair sheep. Yeah, I have my actually my feeder lambs for the last couple of years have been Katahdin's and they're and they're performing pretty nicely for us um, oh, yes. as well. Um, I I like the wool sheep for um, a little bit better muscling um, and um, for a little bit better survivability in the winter um, because my flock spends the winter outside and we lamb on pasture outside in the spring. So having the having the wool is kind of like they're carrying part of their barn around with them. Um, so they're and in your area, it's important they can handle those cold winters. Yeah, it doesn't get super cold here. I think, um, you know, the typical winter for us is, um, you know, long stretches of below freezing for sure. Um, and, but very, not a whole lot of days below zero. Some, you know. Oh, yes. Um, so we, and, and we don't have the, the uh, cruel winds that, uh, that a lot of people have out in the Midwest, you know, we our terrain is broken up enough that, um, that we, that we have some pretty good shelter. Um, but what we do have is wet snow and that can make animals oh, pretty yes. miserable. Um, and, uh, so in, in our system, we found that the, uh, that the wool, the woolly sheep do better than the, than the hair sheep in that, in that outdoor setting. And, um, the people that I get my, uh, get my feeder lambs from, um, you know, happen to have a, you know, pretty nice barn that they can, that they can raise their, their, uh, that they can winter their sheep in. So, um, you know, that, that works out well for them. Um, and, and they, they get some of the advantages of the hair breed that aren't accessible to me as, as a breeder, but that, you know, work well for me as a feeder lamb producer. Oh, yes. Now, where are you located? We're in southwestern New Hampshire. Um, the nearest town of any note would be um, the city of Keene, New Hampshire, which is um, just uh, about five miles from, from where my farm is. Um, we're about two and a half hours from Boston and um, two hours north of uh, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, three and a half, four hours north of New York City. Oh, okay. I just wanted to get that location in there because I knew you were a little bit further north than I am, mm -hmm. um, being in Oklahoma. Yep. Now, you, you mentioned the, the hair feeder lambs. I, I've got a flock of hair ewes, and I, I thought about using a wool ram on those to try and get some benefit of some little bit bigger lambs on them. What's your thoughts about that? Um, well, it can certainly work, um, but then you, you know, if you're not going to, it works better, I think, if you're not going to retain any of the ewe lambs for breeding, because obviously if you breed them to a wool breed, you're going to have um, kind of, as far as the fiber goes, the worst of both worlds. You're going to still have to shear them, <laughs> right. but you're going to have to throw the wool away. Um, True. So uh, yeah, I would see it as a terminal cross. Right, right. So for that, um, I mean, I've seen seen some really, really nice um, crosses between um, 
you know, like a, a Katahdin U cross to a Texel lamb can produce an awfully nice lamb. Um, oh, yes. You know, because the Texel provides the the loin depth and the and the mu- more muscly hindquarters, um, and the Katahdin is a you know good mothering you and um, and and sort of prolific, but not overly so. Um, right. So you know it, it, that's a really nice cross, provided that you don't give in to temptation and say, "Oh, I need to keep like a half a dozen of those ewe lambs just because they're so nice." You know, you've, you really got and that's it. a difficult thing. Yeah, <laughs> we end up keeping more than we should of everything. It seems. I had the on our flock. We're about to we're at the size we want to stay. So I've been looking at that or some other options there. So very good information about that. Tell us when you so what time of year do you buy your feeder lambs and then what do you do with them? Um, so I buy them in in May, which is about when our our pasture really gets going here. Um, we're usually you can usually kind of count on being snow covered here until sometime in early April. Ground thaws out sometime late April. Um, and then by the beginning of May, the grass really starts to take off. Um, so I try to get the feeder lambs on, on the pasture, um, before the end of May. Of course, we're, we're also trying to make sure that they're large enough to, um, you know, to have the rumen capacity to process pasture, which, um, really needs to be a, you know, 55 to 60, 65 pound lamb when it hits the pasture. Oh, Yes. So, um, you know, usually the, the first of May, they're a little bit shy of that. So they usually end up coming, you know, three, two, three weeks later into, into, I'm sorry, into May, um, first week of May, they're, they're lighter than that. Um, so we, we get them on the grass basically as, as early as we can in May. And, um, then they're, uh, then they graze all summer and, um, the end of end of September, I usually take about half of them to a local processor. Um, I've I'm selling whole lambs to private customers, um, so I truck them to the processor. I get them um, slaughtered, cut and wrapped, um, and I deliver boxes of meat to my customers. So it's a direct market. Oh yes, and did you say about fifty percent of them? So the first batch in, 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 yeah, in, in, in uh, late September, or early October, I saw, I bring about half of them and then the other half, um, will go, uh, usually in late November, early December. And do you, is that the end of your growing season or is your growing season ending a little bit earlier than that? The growing season ends, grass stops growing usually sometime in, in October, um, depending on the weather earlier or later in October. Um, so I'm grazing stockpiled um, forage basically from somewhere around October 15th until, um, you know, either until we get too much um, snow cover or um, until the, until the lambs go, which is, you know, end of, end of November, like right around Thanksgiving. I had a couple of years when I was able to 
do stockpile grazing pretty late into the into the winter. One year actually we went all the way into February. Oh, nice. very very unusual. Um, and but you know typically I can I, I can manage it so that I have stockpile um, for about six to eight weeks after the end of the growing season. And usually what stops me is a cold wet snow that then freezes hard and becomes ice and they can't dig down through it and get to the grass. So I usually have grass that I can't graze. Oh, yes. And what kind of forages are those that you're stockpiling? Um, a little bit of everything. Um, for grasses, it's orchard grass, timothy, brome, um, you know, your typical cool season grasses. Um, there is some reed canary grass in there, but it, that doesn't stockpile very well. Once it freezes, it kind of turns yellow and gets bitter, and they don't like it. Um, let's see, what else do I have? Um, there's red and white clovers. There's some some forbs. Um, but the really the mainstay of the nutrition in the stockpile would be the those big three grasses, the, the orchard grass, the... Uh, Timothy, the brome, and then the uh, the red clover and the ladino clover. Is that your forages or varieties you have all summer as well? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't do any planting of annuals at this point. I've tried it. I've messed with it a few times. Um, and unless they solve some other problem um, in my overall farming system, they're not economical for me to plant just as sheep feed. If you understand oh, yes. what I'm saying, right? The, the amount of gain that I can get on, on, um, you know, say turnips or, um, kale or something like that, that I could plant to extend my grazing season, um, just isn't worth the expense of tillage and, and planting and so forth, because I'd have to take land out of production in order to do that. And I don't have extra, perennial pasture for that so right and you get all those trips over the pasture and stuff have you tried broadcasting any seed in or or not um i have i have messed with that a little bit and with pretty mixed results so i one of the things i tried to do at one point was to um trample in some um, oats and peas into a really sparse area of pasture where a pasture seeding had a permanent pasture seeding had failed on me the previous year um, and <laughs> what sort of happened was that the sheep ended up eating a lot of the seed oh, instead yes. of just trampling it in so we weren't we weren't super successful with that. We did get some catch, but um, not not really enough to take home. Um, and um, and I've done a lot of uh, frost seeding of clover and uh, bird's foot trefoil in the past. So um, that's a has broadcasting that been pretty process. successful for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it either it either works great or it doesn't work. Um, it's been my experience with it. Um, oh yes, and the variable there is just going to be how much um, free, how how the freeze and thaw cycles go. Um, right. We're trying to broadcast it on days when it's um, going to be frozen at night and thawed during the day, so that there's ground movement that opens up little crevices 
that the seed can roll down into and then get good seed to soil contact that way. Oh, yes. We've tried broadcasting some things and we've had mixed results with it. I keep thinking one day we're going to figure it all out, but it's not <laughs> happened yet. No, I think it would be pretty boring if you ever got it all figured out. You know, <laughs> I, I, my uh, father-in-law used to say, "You never, you, you'll learn something new every day if you're not careful." And, <laughs> right, uh, that's true. <laughs> I just assume keep learning things. I I agree. Occasionally, you get pretty confident in your ability, or I do, and I think, oh, I've, I've got this figured out, and quickly, something tells me I do not. Yep. Or you had it figured out for those sets of circumstances, and now it's different. And it's all new, yes. Yep. So when you're managing your livestock on your pasture, how do you how do you manage your livestock? You have them all turned out there? You're rotating your pastures? Yeah, I, I am, um, the, the farm that I'm on now, I, well, I guess I should probably start by saying um, I don't own any of the land that I farm. Um, oh, yes. I, I, well, that's not 100% true. I have, I, I have about two acres at home that I, uh, that I will occasionally add into the pasture rotation, but most of my farmland is about four miles from home. Um, it's a little cluster of fields that belongs to three different landowners. It totals about 26 acres. Um, and um, there's no permanent fence. There's no um, water plumbed anywhere. Um, so I'm doing it kind of all the hard way. Um, but <laughs> yeah. I use a portable electrified net. Um, and I move the, I move the flock every day, um, to a new paddock. Sometimes, um, if I'm in particularly rough, um, forage, I might actually move them twice a day. Um, but generally speaking, I'm, I'm doing a, a daily move. Um, so, um, for example, right now I've got the, um, it's a total of 46 animals. Um, so, you know, still a pretty small flock. Um, they're in a, um, a paddock that is 164 feet long by about 37 and a half feet wide. Um, and that will hold them for, that's enough grass to hold them for about 24 hours. They're going in at a grass height of about, right now, about 16 inches. And they're, they're leaving behind, um, you know, somewhere between four and six inches of, of residue. Is that your typical gold for your residue? Yeah, yeah. I don't like to get anything below four inches. Um, uh, sometimes I'll cheat that a little bit at the end of the grazing season when I'm grazing dormant grass. Um, but basically, if it's got a chance of regrowing, I want to leave some solar panels there for it to be able to capture whatever last lingering sunlight we might have in the you know True. the gloaming days of October. Um, so, yeah, so right now I'm, I'm, if anything, I'm cheating on the long side because I would really like to have um, this grass that I'm grazing now here in the beginning of September um, have enough um, residue left to actually do a good job of regrowing 
and be providing me with good forage, um, you know, sometime in the middle of October. Like it'll be the the tail end right. of my stockpile, basically. Right. Yeah. So you're moving that. You're moving your netting uh, once a day. How's those? How's the moves going with the netting? I've never used the netting personally. Um. I've been using it since the first day that I got sheep, so I'm kind of used to it. Um, I have a certain amount of, I have, a, I have a way of doing it, and I have certainly have muscle memory on on uh, setting it up and taking oh, it yes. down. Yes. So, um, so the way I do it is I set up kind of a laneway um, that where there's where there's two fences running parallel to one another about 164 feet apart the length of a piece oh, of this okay. net is 164 feet so um you know then i set up two nets across that and you know uh, about three posts apart is 37 and a half feet um so i i uh, right now that's how i'm how, how i'm setting them up and then um i leapfrog that back fence in front for the following day, um, if that's making sense. Um, right. So before okay. every every day, the first thing I do when I arrive on the scene um, is, uh, you know, I give kind of a quick cursory overview of the sheep, take a quick look at them, make sure that, you know, nobody's got their feet in the air, X's in their eyes or anything like that. And, right. Um, turn off the energizer and open open the fence up and let them go into the next paddock. Um, then uh, I take down the fence that was behind them and I move that forward for the next day. So I'm never setting up fence in front of hungry sheep. They're never running around oh, yes. yelling at me um, saying it's time to go, it's time to go. Um, that stress isn't good for them and it's also not good for me. Um, so um, that was a trick that I learned, I don't know, a few years back to just always make that your practice is to make sure that you're setting up um, whatever you're going to be moving the sheep into the following day. And I did that when I was raising beef as well. I always had the, the next place that they were going to set up um, while they were, you know, they were busy with their heads down the, the oh, first yes. day, yeah, the first few minutes of the move. So do you have four um, links of the netting or five? Uh, at any given point, I would probably have, uh, what, I would have f at least five in, in Right, play. that gives you the way to set up next day's yep. paddy, and then you turn them into it, and then you take down that back fence that was the back fence on today's paddy. Right. So actually, okay. total, the total setup, you, you might need as many as seven because there are going to be times when you need to extend that those two long sides past. Like the, the, the math isn't going to work out perfectly for. Right. Um, you know, maybe, maybe your, your uh, pastures are a little bit more regular shape than they are in, you know, out there in Oklahoma than they are here in New Hampshire. But. <laughs> we don't get rectangles here. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. We, yeah. we have to, if we have rectangles, it's because somebody has gone to great time and expense to create them. To do it. <laughs> I, I do think you, your terrain is much more rugged than ours is right where I am. Mm -hmm. At least we have some areas that's, that's pretty rugged, but where I am pretty flat and pretty much where I'm 
want to put a fence, I can. Yep. So just to give you an idea, these fields that I'm farming, um, the over 26 acres, it's um, they're not all contiguous. There's there's uh, uh, some some woods in between them, but um, the lowest field is about 900 feet above sea level, and the highest okay. field is uh, about um, 1,250. And oh, yes. there's there's about um, a little bit less than half a mile from one to the other. So um, it, it's, you know, it's, it's rolling. It, it's not like we're farming on the sides of cliffs like they do in, in Scotland <laughs> and Northumberland, but yeah. it's, yeah, it's not land that, that you want to drive tractors over every day. Right. Now, when you're moving from one uh, parcel of land to another parcel, do you just have the sheep, they follow you with a feed bucket or... How do you move them from one piece well, of Well, it's one of the challenges of raising grass-fed sheep, right, is that they don't get bucket trained. Oh, well, you know, you're exactly right, yes. So I have border collies um, that, uh, oh, yes. that that move the sheep with me. Um, and to be honest with you, this about the second time they've done a move on a trail, they know where they're going. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, it gets easier each, each time. It's kind of hard when the lambs are little. Um, but, um, you know, the, the, the few lambs that we're having born on pasture in May, um, when I have to move them, <clears throat> you know, I try pretty hard to make sure that that's a, a pretty confined move. Um, I, I try not to do any of the long moves with lambs that are less than, you know, say 45 to 60 days old, but Oh, yes. Sometimes I have to. Now, do you have any livestock guardian animals with your sheep? Yeah, I have a um, couple of Marema dogs. I have um, one that is, um, she's going to be 12 this December, which is oh, quite yes. old for a livestock guardian dog. But she's a, she's a trooper. She's still actually really working and really effective. Um but and I've got a, a five-year-old coming up behind her because she isn't going to last forever. Um, and I, Sadly, I wouldn't, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't do this with without that kind of a dog. Um, I did for a while. I've had I've had livestock guardian dogs so now for twenty years. And between the Electronet and the livestock guardian dogs, I'm I'm pretty comfortable um, with the. Uh, you know, the predator situation, I've, uh, knock on wood, I've, I've, uh, never lost, a an animal to a predator when it was inside Electronet with a guard dog. The only time that, that I've oh, lost yes. animals Very to predators good. is when something has gone wrong with the fence. Um, oh yes. And they've broken out or something. Now what kind of predators pressure are you dealing with there? We have, um, this thing called an Eastern coyote, which is, um, a hybrid red wolf and, um, the kind of coyote that you'd have out in the prairies. So it's going to be bigger than what we have. Right, right. Um, these are, you know, your typical one is probably 45 to 50 pounds. Um, yes. I've seen them go as big as, um, as 70 um, oh, 65 is yeah. not, not uncommon. I mean, they really look more like a wolf than they do like a coyote. Um, and they, and they hunt in packs. 
Um, owls, yes. So they are very, they're very much like a wolf. Um, they don't cover as much ground as a gray wolf will. Um, we are on kind of the very, very southern and western fringe of timber wolf, gray wolf territory. Um, so we do get occasional dispersers that come through. Um, okay. But they're like, I don't plan around that because it's such a rare event. Um, oh, yes. Bears are an issue, black bear. Um, and uh, I think those are our, you know, so the the eastern coyote and the black bears are the ones that I worry about the most. There, there could be some, some pressure from, from um, you know, bald eagles and, and hawks yes. and things of that nature as well. But that's really only on the very, very newest lambs. And usually they'd have to be kind of abandoned in the first place in order for a raptor to go after them. I want to jump back to your border collies for just a second. Do you buy them trained? Do you raise them? Um, I, I usually buy puppies from people who I know who have, you know, good working parents. Um, and then I, for better or for worse, train them myself. Um, oh, yes. It would probably make more um, economic sense for me to buy a trained dog, um, but I really like I like the challenge of, of working with a young dog and I like seeing a young dog coming up and, and, um, you know, kind of being able to know the dog that well to oh, you yes. know, bring home a little eight week old. Um, they're never a blank slate, but they're not far from it at eight weeks. And then, you know, sort of working with what's there and molding it and, you know, really kind of knowing the dog that well, which you, you can't really do with a dog that you buy that's trained. Um, right. But on the other hand, if you buy a dog that's trained, you've got a trained dog. <laughs> um, right. I, I've thought about getting a border collie and, and I lean towards getting a puppy because the reasons you stated. However, my limitation there or my fear there is I don't have enough time to train them adequately and my knowledge of training is lacking. Right. So that makes me think, well, maybe I should get a, a trained dog. And thus far, I've done neither. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, I was really fortunate when I was first starting out to be able to kind of glom on to a community of people um, who were not far from me geographically, who were happy to help me training my first couple of dogs. Oh, um, yes. That and, would be beneficial. Um, and I learned a lot from them, and, and we also would get together and, and hire, um, you know, sort of internationally known dog trainers to come and give us a real intensive weekend of lessons, or we called them a clinic. Um, oh, yes. With, uh, you know, where they would, you know, work through with, with a whole bunch of different dogs, um, you know, try to move them from, you know, work on a specific problem that a, that a trainer was having or, or that a dog was having. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, those things are, you know, they're, they, uh, you know, I still carry the knowledge that I obtained in those 
early days. Um, I got my first border collie in 1994. Um, so, you know, and I still go back for refreshers every now and then when I can. Um, and uh, I'm not a great dog trainer. Um, my second thoughts are almost always better than my first. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so it takes, you know, it takes a certain kind of dog to work with me. Um, you know, there, there needs to be mutual patience. Um, but, um, you know, we get it done. Um, I haven't had a dog wash out on me yet. I've had some that I liked better than others, but I haven't had one that was a total washout. So well, very good. that's not a bad track record over uh, 25 years. Yes, I don't think so either. And I appreciate you humoring me going on that tangent a little way, little ways away from our topic. Um, well, I don't think so, though, really, because, I mean, I couldn't do what I do without Border Collies. I, they're just, it would be um, infeasible, unfeasible for me oh, to yes. think about renting the kind of land that I rent and, um, you know, operating the way I operate um, without having you know, at least one good dog all the time and, and uh, you know, ideally two. I've, I've heard that if I had a good dog, I'd never go back. Yep. So jumping back to the equipment, you use the ElectroKinet. What kind of energizer do you have and what kind of voltage does that run? Um, I am using um, two or three joule energizers. I, oh, yes. one brand name that I have right now is um, Speedrite. Um, I also, on my uh, my little flock of laying hens, I have a, um, a smaller half, uh, one jewel rather, um, that's a, a Patriot model. Um, and I mean, it varies. Um, we're having a really rainy day right now here thank goodness, because we haven't had very many of them. Um, but because that electric net is in contact with a lot of wet vegetation, my voltage is down around 4,000 volts on the fence. Oh, yes. Um, certainly plenty enough to keep them in and keep coyotes out. Right. Um, but um, when everything's uh, dry and running as it should be, I'm usually running, um, you know, Five six thousand volts on the on the uh, electronet. Oh, very good. Now, are they battery operated or solar powered? Yeah. Well, they're battery. battery operated with, um, and I use a solar panel to keep a trickle charge on the on the deep cycle oh, okay. battery. Um, yeah. And do you have a cart that makes that easy to move when you move your pins? Well, let me jump back. Your electro netting. You set up your long lane so you can just set it there and it's going to stay well they do have to move the thing a lot and it is a pain in the butt and it would be oh, a lot yeah. better if i had a cart but i don't <laughs> oh yes I yeah i have a i have a hand dolly that i move it around with and that it doesn't work really well and i need a better system uh you know that's one of those things i've been telling myself for 30 years now and it just has, hasn't ever right. quite gotten to the top of the to-do list yes and sometimes you look at those um, things that or solutions that are pre-made and the price scares you. Mm -hmm. I mean, th this setup, I could just put it in a, um, you know, in a, in a 
little wagon, kid's wagon, and drag it around. Oh, yes. Be be better than what I'm doing now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, right now I, I um, move it on a two-wheeled hand truck, and usually about halfway through the move, it you know, one of the wheels falls into a gopher hole, and the whole thing <laughs> tips over. So it's, um, yes. it's a little bit of a pain, but, um, you know, it, it, it ends up where it needs to be eventually. And, and that's the important part. Right. Get it from point A to point B. It may not I, be pretty, but get it there. Yeah. And I probably only move the energizer every week or two during the grazing season. So it's not like oh. if it was something I was doing every day, I would have I would have solved this problem a long time ago. But it's one of those things that oh, another two weeks have gone by and I haven't I have to move the energizer again and I still haven't figured out how to do it well. But oh well we'll get it done this week and then we'll think about it and we'll figure out how to you know and I never do. Right, right. <laughs> Well, Bill, we are to the part of our Famous Four um, part of our show, and I, I steal that Famous Four from the Bigger Pockets podcast because what they do, they ask their guests four questions, same questions every episode. So we have four questions for you. Our first question is, what's your favorite grazing grass-related book or resource? Um. I'm glad you included resource and not just books because I would have to say my favorite grazing resource is the website on pasture. Um, oh, com yes. that, uh, Kathy Voth puts out, um, just a wealth of information on there. Thousands and thousands of articles, um, and you know, new content going up every week. Um, you can subscribe to an email newsletter. So you get the, the new content pushed to your inbox every week and, um, really, really worthwhile. And, um, she's unfortunately had to start charging a subscription fee recently, but it's worth every nickel. And I would really suggest that everybody in your audience jump right on that. And, and, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, no matter what you're interested in, there's, there's good content on there about, about it. There is, and we will put a link in our show notes to that for our listeners so they can go there. Our next question, what's a tool that you couldn't live without on your farm? Probably the Border Collies would be the top I, one. As I'm reading reading the question, I'm thinking, I wonder if he's going to go with the Border Collies. <laughs> if I had to do an, an inanimate tool, I would say my um, my portable handling system. Uh, yes, we didn't talk about your portaling, portable handling system. So I have, um, when I had the larger flock, I imported a um, mobile handling yard um, from the UK, um, and uh, it all folds up onto its own trailer, and then, um, you know, you basically drop the trailer down on the ground and the trail, the middle part of the trailer becomes the working chute. And oh, yes. you can pull all the panels off and make yourself a really nice, um, very efficient um, stock handling yard wherever you are. And, um, you know, with, with the bigger flock, it was worth the expense of importing that. Uh, it would not be worth the expense of importing it with the number of sheep that I have, unfortunately. But since I already have it, it's indispensable. It's pretty nice to have. Yeah. Yes. I could see that. Yes. 
my pens for the sheep are a little lacking. We're pretty good shape on the cattle, but on the sheep, um, I've got to figure out a better way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I think is a is a real um, barrier to expansion of a lot of sheep flocks in the United States is that people can't envision deworming 500 ewes. Like that just blows their mind. And with a good handling yard, it's something you do before your morning coffee break. You know, it's just... Oh, yes. You know, I, I can... I, with that um, unit, I was, you know, my throughput was about 400 ewes an hour um, for deworming. Oh, wow. So, well, I, yeah. I just dread weaning lambs. Mm. Um, it's it's basically a wrestling match, and I think I lose. Yeah, you do. Anytime you wrestle a sheep, you've already lost. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> yes. Now, our third question, we're changing up just a little bit this time, and I don't have it on your paper, but I think you can handle it. If you were coming across or talking to a new farmer that wanted to go down this path, what would you tell them? This path meaning? Um, grass farming, grass livestock. Farming. Yes. Um, start with more pasture than you think you're going to need. Um, and fewer and or fewer animals. Um, I would say probably the number one mistake that I see new farmers making in my both in just you know sort of my contacts with people and in my my day job is that you know you get somebody who moves out from you know from a city says oh I've got ten acres it just sounds infinite to them because they're oh, used yeah. to you know yards that are measured in square feet. And I've got 10 acres, so I'm going to get 30 hogs, and I'm going to get 28 <laughs> goats, and I'm going to get 55 sheep, and I'm going to get 10 cows, and it's going to be great. And before they know it, they've got a dirt yard, you know, a great big dirt lot and yes. nothing else. Um, so understock at the beginning, and, and as you build your expertise, um, build up your stocking density um, and your stocking rate on your land. Um, and um, so, yeah, I think that would be my, my first advice to, to newcomers. And I think that's excellent advice. I think that's something I struggle with even now after doing this for years. Uh, lastly, where can others find out more about you? Oh, I'm very secretive. I don't. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um I have a website at edgefieldsheep.com, um, and there's a, uh, a link there to sign up for a, a newsletter, which is mostly about um, product that, that's for sale, so it wouldn't be relevant to, to most grass farmers. Um, and as far as um, like my, um, my day job, um, I work for the New Hampshire Association of Conservation Districts, and we have a website at nhacd.net. Um, and I'm not sure we're supposed to be updating that with information about the, the uh, grazing planning and so forth that I do um, for them, um, you know, through grant funding. So it's uh, something that's at no cost to the farmer, but it's unfortunately only available to New Hampshire residents. So um, limited audience. True. And I don't know if we have any listeners in New Hampshire, but we're working on it. 
<laughs> well, you got one now. <laughs> oh, well, great, great. And, and we'll put l links to those websites in our show notes for anyone who would like to go visit your website or the other site. Bill, we really appreciate you joining us today. I think it's it's been a wonderful time. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping farmers produce livestock for grass. I don't think that's it, but it's close. Thank you for listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers produce forages for livestock. If you visited our website at grazinggrass.com lately, you know we are having technical difficulties. The website will be back up and running soon. Also, be watching for a giveaway to happen during October. See you soon. Thank you for listening. If you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest link. We are looking for guests for this year. So if you're interested, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support the show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is through our Patreon. If you'll go over to grazinggrass.com and click on support, you'll see our links there. And that lists some ways you can support it. But you can click on the Patreon link. And for a small amount a month, you help support this podcast so we're able to put out more episodes. And we appreciate that. Also, there is a second level there. If you're a beginning farmer or just getting started and you're wanting more assistance, there is a start grazing grass level there that you could subscribe to and gain more information. No matter what you choose to do, we appreciate you listening. Keep on grazing grass.